Welcome to The Founders. This is the podcast where we dig into the startup stories behind some of the most exciting and innovative businesses by speaking to the founders themselves. I'm Alex. And I'm Joe. And today we're speaking to Dishbatch's co-founder and CEO, Peter Butler, who is described by the Financial Times as a new food innovator. So Dishpatch posts meal kits from top restaurants in London and deliver them across the UK. And in this conversation with Peter, what did you like talking to him about? So obviously Peter's got quite a good history uh, in that he started multiple businesses and a couple of them didn't work out. So it was really interesting finding out about what kept him driven uh, through if effectively the, the failure of both of those businesses into the launch of Dishpatch. Straight after that bit of the conversation as well, I start to ask specifically about how that business works. It's quite an interesting business model once you get to the to the nuts and bolts of it. So I really wanted to understand how does it work? How does it make money? How do you scale it? Um, and so we go into quite some detail about those aspects as well. Yeah, and he was really honest and transparent throughout. And there was, for anyone that is thinking about the logistics behind business, this is definitely a really interesting podcast. And we even found out about things like perseverance and how you can learn from any mistakes that you make in business. So this is Peter. Enjoy. So first of all, it's good to meet you, Pete. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Just for our audience who maybe haven't heard of either yourself or Dishpatch before, we thought it would be good to do basically a little elevator pitch uh, of what Dishpatch is and how you service your customers. Yeah, so I run Dishpatch. Um, we work with amazing chefs and restaurants, people like Ossolenghi, Michelle Wood Jr., Tom Kerridge, Angela Hartner, and we deliver their food nationwide. We do that in the form of what we call restaurant meal kits, and they are restaurant food prepared by the restaurant, delivered to you cold to finish and reheat at home. And the general idea is that we allow all these amazing chefs and restaurants to send their food to people wherever they live across the UK. And we allow people wherever they live in the UK to have the best and most amazing food in their home without having to go to the restaurant or without having to cook it themselves. Awesome. And we've got a few more questions about Dishpatch as a business and as a concept a little bit later. Um, but before we get into those, we wanted to introduce you to the audience as well. And essentially, we wanted to get a little bit of a background into you as a person and then how you started uh, your first company. Yes. Yeah, so my background, and I'll take, uh, I'll take you back to when I was sort of 15, 16. I was always obsessed with two things, starting businesses and food and restaurants. And when I was 15, um, I, I really wanted to become a chef. That was kind of what I wanted to do. And I wanted to hopefully like open my own restaurant one day and do that kind of thing. So I used to spend every weekend working as a chef in the local restaurant. So I did that, really wanted to become a chef. My parents were like, no, 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 you should keep studying, go to university and do something else. And so I, it doesn't happen very often, but I did listen to them. So I stopped chefing, went to uni, did that for a few years. I left my one and only proper job, which was as a management consultant 10 years ago. I basically spent the last 10 years doing a whole bunch of different stuff in food and restaurants. Um, combination of working with people. Um, so I've helped to open restaurants. Uh, I've helped to run events and then doing my own things. Um, I used to run an events company where we worked with restaurants and we would help them cater events. I used to run like pop-up food events, tried a whole bunch of different stuff in the space. And now I'm running Dishpatch, which is kind of a culmination of everything I've done, whether it's working in restaurants or trying to start my own thing. So it's obviously a very big endeavor to to go from consultancy and working within the industry to going, I'm going to make my own mark on the industry and I'm going to effectively 
risk what I potentially have now in the sense that I have a relatively stable income and I'm going to start my own thing and I'm going to show everyone what we can do. What was that thing that that drove you to decide to start your own business? And what was the thing that's kind of pushed you over the edge and into it? You know what? It didn't feel like a risk at the time. The biggest risk I felt was staying in a consulting job and becoming like a senior consultant. The thing that pushed me over the edge was, I remember I've done it for a couple of years and I think I've been promoted, but I was still fairly junior in the office. And I would look at the people above me. I would look at the people that were like five or 10 years ahead of me. And I looked at them and, you know, they were getting paid really well. They were like successful on paper. But I looked at them and I thought, I do not want to have your job. Like, I actually don't want to be where you are. I don't think the quality of life is high. This is not creative. These guys are just working super, super hard and they're on this treadmill. And I could see that they were like locked into their life. They were at a point where they were earning almost like so much money that they couldn't move anywhere else. And they had families at this time. And I was like, I, I do not want to be that person. And if I don't do something, if I don't do my own thing, if I don't leave this role, I'm going to become that person. And that for me is a risk. And so once I saw that, I was like, it is never going to get easier for me to leave my job and try and do my own thing. It's only ever going to get harder. And actually the lowest risk time is now when I don't have any commitments. Um, and so I quit. And I quit without any idea of what I was going to do. I was just like, I'm going to work in food and restaurants and I'm going to try and start my own thing. I have no idea what that was. And I remember the, the company where I left at the time were like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> you don't even have an idea. You're like, you've only been working for a couple of years. Why don't you just stay here and you know, you'll, you'll get more experience and you'll be in a better position in the future. And so I left without any idea. And I kind of figured it out from then, tried a few different things which we can go into. Some worked, some didn't. And it's taken me a lot longer than I expected to, to build something that I think has the potential to be the kind of business I want to build, which is what Dispatch is. Um, but I don't regret it. And it did not feel like a risk at the time and has never felt like a risk looking back. This is the kind of next thing that we wanted to get onto is was it a smooth journey to where you are now or was there a lot of lessons that were learned along the way to this point do you want to talk a little bit about the the companies that you'd started previously because we obviously on your linkedin that you're you're very open and honest about this kind of thing so it was a question that we wanted to put out there it was the least smooth journey so i was doing it, it took me 10 years between leaving bcg which was as a consultant to starting dispatch which i would say is like the first thing i've done which has been pretty successful you know we haven't exited yet so it's not and anything could happen but like it's been 10 years and it's been a pretty pretty crazy journey the first i would say five years was actually figuring out exactly what i wanted to do it's all very well saying i want to work in food and i want to start my own business so that could mean like a multitude of things that can mean opening a restaurant that can mean building like an app for restaurants it can be running events and so those first five years I, I did lots of projects, but none of them were real businesses. So I ran like pop-up food events. And it was a business in a sense. We created a product, we sold tickets, we made money just, only just. And so I did pop-up food events. I ran a charity food projects. So we got all these chefs um, to cook mince pies at Christmas and we'd auction them off and we'd raise a bunch of money for charity. I did all this cool stuff. Those were pretty successful in the, you know, I got lots of press and PR and, they were great projects and great products. They weren't, I realized they weren't businesses. And never really made any money and they were never going to scale. And so the first five years, and I was kind of looked at that and said, 
these are really fun. Like, I love doing this, but actually, I want to run a business. I want to make some money. I want to do something that can have impact on a bigger scale. So first of all, wasn't a failure, but I just kind of like was figuring out what I wanted to do. So then I was like, I actually want to build businesses here and I want to build businesses for food and restaurants. And that's when I tried like proper scalable kind of VC-backed tech ideas, but they didn't work. So the first thing I did was I started an app to help restaurants communicate with their food and drink suppliers. Um, classic VC play, there are companies that started at the same time that I did that have now raised loads of money and become be really, really successful. I completely screwed up the execution. Right idea, couldn't execute, never raised the money, never really, we had some users, never really got off the ground. And I tried something else. This was the events idea where I worked with restaurants and I helped cater events. Slightly more successful, pretty quickly realized that wasn't scalable. And so I kind of wound up two and a half years ago with these two kind of, I mean, they were failures. Like, there's no other way about it. Like, I wanted them to be big, successful businesses, and neither was. And then we got to Dispatch where I kind of joined the dots and figured out what didn't work, didn't make those mistakes again, and built something that, you know, that has gone a lot further. And were you simultaneously running those uh, two businesses? Was it Stockton and Trestle? Stockton and Trestle. No, I, I did them sequentially. In actual fact, as soon as stopped, I realized that wasn't working and I couldn't raise the money. I started the next one like two weeks later. I was like, I've got to go again. I've got to try something new. I'd kind of thought of this other idea. And so I jumped in on that, which also didn't work, of course. But yeah, they were absolutely, uh, they, were, they were sequential. I find it so interesting that you time and time again went back to you need to f- like found a business. You mentioned earlier on that it was, you know, you looked at people in your um, management consultant job who were more senior than you. And you looked at them and thought, that's not essentially not the life that I want for myself. And it seemed to you that the answer to that was to go and therefore start a business that you owned that you could, I imagine, make the life uh, that you wanted to make for yourself. Is that still the goal or have you found something along the way that like, do you intrinsically enjoy running a business? What What is it about it that keeps getting you, that keeps drawing you into operating businesses? I think there's two things. And yeah, now I've operated the business that's a lot bigger and has grown a lot faster than the other ones has been a little bit more successful. I can tell you now, I still want to run businesses. I have not changed. <laughs> like the hunger is, is strong, if not stronger than ever before. I, I think it comes down to two things. When you run a business, the upside and the potential is unlimited. It's like only as big as you can dream and as only as big as you can make happen. When you work for someone else, you are limited by the place that you're in, the people that surround you and the structures uh, that are in place in a job. And so I would go into my consulting job and I was surrounded by good people who were doing interesting projects. But I felt really constrained. Whereas when you run a business, you come in in the morning and you think, the only thing that's limiting me today is like the scale of the ideas we can come up with and our ability to execute. So it feels like the impact or potential impact you're going to have is just so much higher when you're an entrepreneur and when you're doing your own thing. And that to me is exciting. I think the second thing that's interesting is I love creative problem solving. I think that is having done so many things and really thought what do I enjoy and what do I not enjoy. I love coming up against problems and finding creative solutions. And I think as an entrepreneur, like that is the essence of what you do. Every single day is like, we need to grow. How do we grow? Okay, why don't we do this? Why don't we do that? And, and, and that's, that's what I love doing. And I think that that is the essence of being an entrepreneur. 
what's interesting there is you'd, you'd pointed out that when you start a business it's as it's as big as you can dream and it says like the mountain that you're climbing as i suppose is as high as you're willing to go but is there ever was there ever a time when you were building those two businesses where you just thought this is gonna be tough like this is gonna be a a rough road and what kept you going in those days I think particularly in the first business I stopped, and this was the app business, it's all very well saying you want to climb a mountain and you've like got this picture of your mountain in the head and what, what it's going to look like when you get to the top. But ultimately, day after day, you've got to put one foot in front of the other and move on a little bit more. And you've got to be able to do that. And the, the thing that I, particularly the first business that I ran, is that we, I think we built the wrong team, so we built the wrong founding team. And so between, there was three of us, so there was a developer and then two commercial people, so me and one other. And we just didn't have the skills between the three of us to actually build the product and do what we needed to do to move forward. And so it's all very well having these massive dreams, but if you can't execute on the dreams, then it's kind of pointless. And, and ultimately, as with many businesses, you can keep trying as hard as you can to move forward, but at some point, you're gonna run out of money and you're not gonna be able to do that. And that's what happened in the first business. And so my real learning, my real learning from that experience was you've got to dream big and you've got to have an amazing vision, but you've got to be able to execute and you've got to be able to execute on the things that you need to do right now. Like what are the things that you need to do today to move the business forward? And if you can't execute on those things, you're never going to be able to achieve the end goal. And I think particularly with Dispatch, I thought a lot more carefully about the team we were building about the co-founder that I brought on board. And we really had the skills to execute on what we needed to do. And therefore we accelerated much quickly and it's been, hasn't been a painless ride that comes with all sorts of other problems, but it, it's felt much better. Have you ever seen, or have you ever worked in a situation where in, across the businesses that you've operated, or have you ever seen a situation where the problem that you're trying to solve requires a certain skill set or knowledge base and there isn't someone in the founding team who has that and it still be a success like do you think it's possible to be able to reach that level of success by bringing in people who are essentially employees of a business to go and solve a a larger dream i think you can do that but you've got to be able to raise money you've got to be able to raise money you very rarely in your co-founding team have skills that cover off every single thing that you need to do in an ideal world i think you need the right skills for like most businesses have two or three really, really important things you absolutely need to get right. So in Dishbatch, the two things that were really important to us, one was being able to sign up restaurants and sell to restaurants. And that was my skill set. The second thing was to be able to build a digital product really, really quickly. And that was my co-founder skill set. There was little bits here and there that we were missing and we managed to bring those skills in. I think if you're missing one of those big skills, so let's say you're the person that can sign up restaurants, but you've got no one to build your product, you can get around that if you raise money. And some people are able to raise money uh, for whatever reason, based off an idea or without the co-founding team, not everyone. If you can do that, you can bring skills in. If you can't do that, and my first business was, was exactly that. We were building an app and we could build a tech, we could go and sign up restaurants, but we really needed a designer. And that was our limiting factor. And we got to this position where we were trying to raise money to hire a designer because we couldn't get any further until we had a designer. But our, uh, the investors were saying, well, 
are you going to give me more money until you've got further? And so we, we, we were in the standoff and then, you know, the business died. Moving on to Dispatch, it's an interesting uh, model in the sense that it would be good to understand what the original idea was and whether or not that has changed over time. But I think it's one that seems to be gaining popularity more and more and has also been an advantage for restaurants or chefs to have a part in, whether it was through throughout the pandemic or whether it is now that the the high streets almost being threatened a little bit by this looming energy stuff it will be interesting to learn about where the original concept came from and whether it had a look at what was going on in sort of macroeconomically and was taking advantage of, of that or uh, or not taking advantage helping that situation for uh, people in the food industry or was it something that was completely based on your previous experience or where did the where did the idea come from so, so we were never we were actually never planning to build dispatch it was like it happened, but we never designed it that way. So it all started two and a half years ago, so March 2020. Having said I'd worked in the restaurant and assumed food for the last 10 years, I basically run out of ideas. I couldn't think of any new idea. And I was planning to do something completely different. Probably start my own business, but probably not in food and restaurants. That was the plan. March 2020, obviously COVID hits. Every single restaurant was forced to close. And it was, I think it was the craziest thing I've ever seen happen to any industry, not least the industry that I knew really, really well. And I knew there was going to be some opportunity to do something in this space. When things change, opportunities get created. Um, so I called James, who's now my co-founder. Uh, we know each other for a few years. He's a web designer, developer. He can build digital products. And I said, look, this crazy stuff's happening. Restaurants are being forced to close. Why don't we build something? I've got no idea what the long-term opportunity is here. But worst case scenario, we've done something to help. Uh, the industry and we've done something to help consumers. And so the first version of Dispatch was actually nothing to do with restaurants or restaurant meal kits. It was actually a way to buy your groceries online from independent shops and from restaurant wholesalers. Um, so if you cast your mind back to the beginning of the pandemic, you basically couldn't get your groceries delivered. Um, Ocado had like a three month waiting list, all the shops were closed. So we built this product, we put it live, and it got traction really quickly. Actually, probably way more than the pre two previous things I've done. We had 80,000 people hit the site in the first couple of weeks. We were selling groceries for a few months, but kind of eight, nine, 10 weeks in, we pretty quickly realized that there was no long-term opportunity in the space. There's a million ways to buy groceries online. Uh, shops were opening up again. Acada didn't have a waiting list. Our sales basically fell off a cliff. But as we were building this thing, a couple of restaurants had started to do these things called restaurant meal kits. They were basically putting their food in the post, sending it nationwide. And we, we had one restaurant where we were selling their meal kit on our website. And that meal kit was selling more than like every other product combined. We were kind of like, this is really interesting. And you know what? This is not just interesting for right now. This is interesting for when restaurants open and, 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 and post pandemic. So we were like, well, well let's try and see in the space. I basically called a chef friend of mine and said, do you want to do a meal kit together? We think it's really interesting. You're great at cooking food. We'll do all the logistics. We'll, we'll worry about that. Um, and we'll see how it goes. Probably won't work, but let's see. So one week later, we designed this meal kit. We put it on our site. We got a little bit of press. We put it live and we sold, I think we sold 100 boxes in the first day. So we made more revenue in the first day of selling this meal kit than in 10 weeks of selling groceries on our website. And that was the moment we were like, we need to go all in on this. So we, we sat off the groceries idea. 
went all in on meal kits, and then we kind of never looked back. And so we never, ever planned to do this. Um, it was purely based on what was happening in the industry at the time. But, but that's like that's where these ideas come from sometimes. And logistically, how do you get these meal kits? And where, like, where, where do they come from? How do you get them out there to people? Logistically, how does all that work? So it, it, it's, a real, um, it's a real team effort between us and the restaurants. So the restaurants cook the food. We do everything else. And the reason we chose this, we knew, although we launched in the first lockdown and restaurants were closed, restaurants, and I know this from working in them, it's really hard to run a restaurant. Restaurants are super busy. They're great at cooking food. They're great at serving guests in the restaurant. It's really hard to do anything else. And so the original idea, and this has not changed, the restaurants cook the food. We basically give them these things called gastronome containers, and they cook the food on a Monday, Tuesday in the restaurant. We give them the containers. They fill them up. We pick the containers up, we take it back to our kind of uh, fulfillment facility, and we do everything else. So we do the portioning, the packaging, we basically create the box, all the things that restaurants don't want to do. We hand it off to DPD who do nationwide delivery, and we do, we do all the marketing on our website, we, we set everything on our website, we do all the customer service end to end. So the restaurants do what they're great at, which is cooking the food, we figure out everything else. And, and that's, that's a perfect win-win, and I think that's one of the reasons why this has worked so well so quickly and then it's a total no-brainer for restaurants oh, interesting and how, like how would say if i run a restaurant is it easy for me to factor in these new meal kits into what i was already doing and preparing in in, in terms of on any given night i might have a certain amount of covers to take care of and I, that therefore translates to a certain amount of meals how would i know how many i've got to cover for dish patch for example when do i get that information how would i prepare for that yeah so the way it works and again we kind of like built the business, knowing how restaurants work and knowing that we want to make this work when restaurants were open as well as when they were closed. So the way it works, we, well, originally, and some of these things have changed, originally we only delivered on a Friday. Um, so you ordered this thing for the weekend. Unlike most delivery where, you know, you open the, let's say, delivery app and you order something right now, these are slightly more special occasions, slightly more treat that the people that live outside of London primarily, and therefore people order them in advance. And so we tell the restaurant one week in advance how many boxes or covers, let's say, in the, next week you've got to cook 100 portions of this menu. So they know a week in advance. They then prep the food in their kitchens, typically on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, so the beginning of the week. And that works really well because restaurants are less busy at the beginning of the week. Restaurants are super busy on a Friday, Saturday evening. They're less busy Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So they prep in the downtime, and it's exactly the same food as they cook in their restaurant. We pick things from their menu. That's what customers want. That's what, they're, that's what they're good at prepping. And the process is the same because although we send you a meal kit and it's cold and you reheat it, that's exactly how a restaurant works. Restaurants do all the prep in advance. It's called mise en place. And then they heat it up effectively when, when the customer comes through the door. So it's exactly the same as what they're doing. Um, they're cooking up like in their downtime, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And it's just incremental re revenue from that makes sense and what for example what would be the pitch to a restaurant owner why like why for example would why would they do that with dispatch why would they not attempt it on their own for example there's a couple of reasons one is why should you do milk kits and two is why should you do them with us what is why should you do milk kits if you turn the clock back five years five six years ago most restaurants didn't do delivery they never needed to do that they open lunchtime dinner five six seven days a week that's all they needed to do the restaurant industry has changed massively over the last five years. 
Eaten sales have gone down. So your revenue has gone down. Your costs have gone up significantly. There's been all these delivery apps and, and, and various other channels that have grown in popularity to the point where it's really difficult for most restaurants to operate profitably when they just do eat-in. So every restaurant has got to think about delivery in some way, shape, or form. Lots of people work with someone like Delivery, and that is great if you are burger, pizza, something that is slightly cheaper, and if you've got lots of people that live near your restaurant because scooters only travel once two miles away. If you are a slightly higher-end restaurant that has you know, like proper coursed meals or small plates, food that doesn't travel well in the back of a scooter, and that has all these people, all these fans around the UK because you're a well-known name. If you're Otolenghi, people know you across the UK, and yet you've got this two or three restaurants in the centre of London. Meal kits are way better for that because you can access the whole of the UK with this product rather than people that are one to two miles from your restaurant. So that's why meal kits, and it's not right for everyone, but certainly like the bigger established brands where people know them outside of London, it definitely works. Then the next question is, why do you do it with us rather than do it yourself? It's this exact reason that running a restaurant is really, really hard. Doing anything other than serving food to people in your restaurant is really, really hard. So sure, you can buy all the packaging. You can do all the packaging yourself in your own kitchen. That's going to be, that's going to be really difficult. We have figured out how to do that better than anybody else. We also work with loads of other great restaurants on our platform. So we now bring a lot of demand to the restaurants as well. So it's a, it's a compelling pitch and it's worked really successfully so far. Yeah, it is a compelling pitch. Like you said, like I know a couple of people that run restaurants, and it is difficult. But they're they're in control of the core product that's at hand. They can see all the costs in front of them. I guess this might be a weird way of looking at it, but as providing a service to these restaurants, a couple of things as dispatch that I imagine are, are regular challenges, which is widening your audience consistently. So you've got marketing costs there. You've got regular costs in in the packaging, in in delivery, in multiple other things. How does the model work when you're operating on that service for for these types of businesses? Do, do they have to pay sort of like a a membership fee to be part of it, or is there a margin involved in in the cost that you that you're charged versus you charge out, or are there other ways that you're you're able to make this business make sense? Um, and I'm actually quite interested to hear about that from you because of you know you've got a plethora of experience in operating different kinds of businesses. Um, this seems to be the one that you've said. Is, is the one that seems to feel like a, the proper business that's working. How, do, how does that work for Dispatch? So broadly speaking, we split the revenue. So we sell a box for, let's say, it's £50 for two people. The split depends a little bit on the menu, but it's, it's roughly equal. So let's say, for the purpose of this conversation, restaurant keeps half, we keep half. For the restaurant's half, their job is to produce the food. And for our half, our job is to package all the food and send it out across the UK um, to all the customers. And What's really interesting about meal kits is there's massive scale advantages and there's ways to do things really efficiently. So for the restaurant, when you, when you open your restaurant and customers come through the door, you've got this massive menu. You might have 25 different dishes. You've got to have everything prepped. You've got no idea what you're going to sell on a given evening. So you have wastage. Uh, it's much more complex. With Dispatch, we're saying you're doing this one menu. It's 100 boxes. Yeah, no more, no less as well. So you know exactly. Exactly, exactly. So it's like very, very low wastage. You're utilizing your kitchen when it's not working, your chefs um, at quite parts of the week. So it works for the restaurant in that respect. And then because we work with multiple restaurants, we're, we effectively have economies of scale on our side as well. 
So we receive the food from lots of different places and then we package everything at the same time. And we invest a lot of time and energy in thinking through how we do that, like obviously safely, but safely, efficiently, high quality. And we're able to invest in things that a standalone restaurant wouldn't be able to do, whether that's the right backpacking equipment. You know, we're just opening actually next week a completely new fulfillment facility, so 20,000 square foot space, which is designed especially for what we do. And we've thought really carefully about the flow and how the products come in, how we do everything really efficiently. So, and of course, if you want to sell your products elsewhere, you've got to open another dark kitchen. We have one fulfillment unit, nationwide coverage from that one place. So every time we have a new restaurant, every time we sell more products, that is efficiencies that we can create in that one unit. No, that's that's excellent because I think when when I when I first started uh, looking into Dispatch and learning about what the service was, honestly, the first thing that went through my head, I was like, "This sounds incredibly difficult to scale." I was like, "Custom meal kits that are like almost." I guess when I first heard it, I was like, "These are like bespoke orders. They'll be different per restaurant. Like they'll be going to different places. You know, organizing that route of delivery must be a nightmare. How do you know the consistency of delivery?" But you've explained it there. It makes a lot of sense how that would scale over time. You know, the other good thing is we don't even need to do the delivery. So if you're a hot food delivery company, your job is to have scooters and you've got to think about, you know, route density and logistics and all these things. We send our boxes out cold. So the food is cold. It's insulated with ice packs. So we can use, we use DPD. So if you delivery on Friday, they pick up on a Thursday afternoon and this huge Arctic lorry turns up. We open the doors. We put several thousand boxes in the back of this lorry. They drive directly to the DPD distribution hub in Birmingham, and they do all the hard work from there. And they operate at like a 99.8% uh, success rate. So we didn't have to touch delivery. All we got to do is package the products. And it's not, not easy. It comes with its own set of challenges, but like that is at least controllable, and it all happens in the same place. But you've essentially created, now you've got a strong customer base and now you've got people making regular orders. You've got almost a platform where there is the opportunity, to, if you're a newer chef, to be discovered because people are going to dispatch regularly. This wouldn't usually happen if you were going to the same restaurants or if you had a favorite restaurant, but there's potential that if you're purchasing your meals through dispatch that you might discover a, a new chef. Do you feel, having had so much time in the food industry, that you have some kind of responsibility to introduce new chefs and up-and-coming chefs to uh, your customers or do you have people approaching you yet to say can can we do you mind if we could be on your platform or anything like that yeah a bit of both this is really important to us one of the reasons we started this and why we were so excited about it is that everyone that works in me and everyone that works in the business loves going to restaurants loves the restaurant industry and we love eating out and Eating out is not just about going to Tom Carriage's restaurant or Ottolenghi's restaurant or eating from the famous chefs. It's also about going to the cult classic, you know, the one that has that's in a basement somewhere that has a queue down the street. It's also about going to pop-up restaurants uh, of like the new up-and-coming chef that haven't even got their own permanent place yet. And so we've really tried to replicate that on the site. We can't work with everyone. So the, the restaurants we have are really curated and we have a really, really high bar, but we've always tried to keep true to the principle that it's a very diverse cross-section of restaurants and chefs. Um, so we do have our Ossolengas and our Tom Carriages. We all, I mean, a great example, we, we recently ran a series called Spotlight and it was 
six um, chefs, up and coming chefs that do not have their own restaurants. So they might run supper clubs or they might have their own Instagram. We found some kitchen space for them and we ran like small limited edition menus and they went down super well. I mean, it was people that had never heard of these people enjoying their food that lived a hundred miles away. Um, and so we love that kind of thing and we have lots of plans to do, to, to do more of that. Have you found that, um, is there like a one key thing or one prominent thing for scale for you guys? So for example, when when we were operating and still operate our business, Campfire, we're a service business and, um, well, we're, we're a social media agency. And we found that a lot of our business was uh, referrals. It was word of mouth and it, be, it came from when we delivered you know, world-class results and finding new innovations. And that was um, one of our best routes to scale, really, wasn't it? Where it was, you know, if you focus on the things that make um, world-class results and world-class service, the rest should follow for us. Have you found, is there any specific prominent thing that you found is is the route to scale for you guys? Is there one key area or is there is there certain channels that you found are really helpful for you to scale? Word of mouth is definitely important. 60 to 70% of our customers come through word of mouth or organic channels. Like this is, I think, and I, I hope and I think certainly we've seen this in the data, this is a really unique product and it's quite remarkable. And sometimes it takes a little bit of explanation because it's a new category, but when people have tried the product, the kind of uh, the light bulb moment goes off and they're like, wow, this is awesome. And like, when you have that kind of product, you speak to other people. So we definitely see that. The other thing that's worked for us really well and actually works, this was kind of the reason we grew so quickly early on, is that our restaurants also sell it to their customers. So if you're Otolenghi, you've got two million followers on Instagram. If you're Angela Hartner, you're on TV all the time. And therefore, these people already have a base of people who know and want to try their product. Um, and and that's, been, that's been really successful for us. And typically what we find is someone might come to our platform because Angela Hart's been talking about it and they've tried Angela Hart's product. Then they go on and say, wow, that was really, really great. You've got all these other people who I haven't heard of, but the meals sound delicious and they'll try those meals next. So if anyone that is listening is aspiring to start, whether it's start their own business or whether it is get into the food industry in some way, we wanted to understand what some of your biggest lessons from your years of experience in business might be that you would want to pass on to someone that might be listening or someone that might want to do something similar to you in the future. Great question. I have a lot of lessons. I have a lot of lessons, some very hard earned. I think I split lessons into sort of two categories. Sometimes you do something and it works. And sometimes you do things that don't work and you're like, I'm never going to make that mistake again. I think one of the one of the things that's worked really, really well with Dispatch has been speed and urgency. I think, and for our case in particular, we had a window of opportunity to build a Dispatch business. When restaurants were closed, we had this window of opportunity to make stuff happen. And I think the reason it worked is because we had this like unbelievable sense of urgency in that we're like, this is our window. We need to do it now to the point where when we decided to do a meal kit, it took us one week from coming up with the idea to calling a chef, getting the chef on board, creating the product, putting the product on our website, marketing the product, selling the product and sending it out. And so speed of execution is the most important thing. Now, 
other people starting the businesses may not have that same dynamic where you have that small window of opportunity. But I think speed is important for a couple of other reasons. One is, if you haven't figured out your idea yet, you have got a ticking, you know, time is ticking before you run out of money or you run out of patience. And therefore, you've got to figure out an idea that works as soon as possible. And I had the opposite example with Stocks, which was my previous business. We couldn't, we couldn't make our idea work before we ran out of money. We didn't execute quick enough. If you have figured out something that works, then you're going to have competitors and people that are going to try and copy you. And therefore, it's like who can get to scale and who can build their business as quick as possible. The speed is the thing that comes up time and time again. You just got to get going. And, you, and I, I see lots of entrepreneurs and some people, you know, contact me for advice on occasion. And one of the things I see people do wrong most often, particularly first-time founders, is they they play startups rather than actually getting shit done. So they, they're thinking about the name for a few weeks and then they're building a business plan and they're like, well, we're going to launch in six months' time. I'm kind of like, why can't you launch today? Like, what would you need to do to launch today or tomorrow or next week? And I think that urgency and speed is, is critical for every startup. This sort of falls under this umbrella, but do you have any other principles that you seem to follow in your business or that you've almost acquired or built into the way that you operate over time whether that's how you work with other people how you operate in your work life or home life are there any principles that you use as guides to to the way that you live or the way that you run your business there are so many i I think to run a successful business you got to do two things one is you've got to come up with a great idea so it's got to be a product that people want and it's going to be something that other businesses don't currently provide. Two is you then got to be able to build that and execute on that idea and bring it to life. Those two things sound really easy. In practice, they're really, really hard. And there is like a multitude of different skills that you need to create great ideas quickly and to execute on your ideas. I think as an entrepreneur, you've got to think as being an entrepreneur is a craft. And you've got to practice those skills. And the only way you can do that is by trying stuff, failing and learning. And I've now got more skills than I had 10 years ago, but there's so many skills like I need to learn. And I think you've got to have that learning mindset. So yeah, there's loads of different advice you can give around how to create a great idea, how to you know execute an idea. But probably the most important thing is like, how do you learn as quickly as possible? How do you become a learning machine and how do you develop those skills? and like get yourself up the learning curve as quickly as possible and are there any um significant people that you uh, look to or rely upon to run your business or businesses in the past or are there any groups of people you would recommend if anyone's starting a business tomorrow that they should go and find and make friends with to help them yeah great question i i, I would say for dispatch specifically i think there are probably two kind of groups or areas where I get a lot of value. One is, I mean, a little bit like you, you just said, is speaking to your peers. And so I speak to lots of people who are building other consumer businesses, other D2C businesses and other food businesses. And there's WhatsApp groups that I'm on and, you know, you, like Slack groups. And, and by speaking to people that are a similar stage to you or like slightly ahead or slightly further behind, most people have come across your problem before and they can help you get to a better solution. So I think that is a great, and there are loads of these communities. There are loads of these communities. You know, a, a good example, my partner runs a community called COO. She's a COO. She's a startup COO. She runs a community called COO Stories. And it's a community 
just for startup CROs. And they have an amazing mailing list where everyone's asking these like super specific and obscure questions related to how to be a CRO. And I can see the value that that community creates because people are just like getting to the answer way quicker than they would have done by trying to figure it out themselves. So, you know, I have those groups of my peers and I think that's really important. The other thing that I think that's really helpful with dispatches are investors on a board of directors. Um, so we work with two people really closely, um, a guy called Andrew Robb, who was COO of Farfetch for 10 plus years and took into IPO. And then um, a lady called Tracy Dory, who's run some amazing, she's worked in VC, she's run some amazing consumer startups before. We work with them in more like board or an advisory capacity. And that's a little bit different than your peers in that these people have been there, seen that and done it before and not just done what we're doing, but they've done the 10 steps beyond what, what we've done. I think that's super helpful for helping you think further ahead rather than like on your day-to-day -day right now, thinking six, 12, 18 months in advance, because I think that's what you've got to do when you're starting a business. If you're constantly firefighting today, you need to look at the bigger picture and getting people that have done what you've done in the past and taken the business to kind of where you want to take the business, that, that, that's super helpful. So yeah, board, advisor, mentor people, and then your peers, I think are the two, two groups that I, certainly I get most value from. Thank you so much for coming on, Pete, and uh, maybe, we'll, maybe we'll catch up again in the, in the future. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Founders. If you liked the content in this podcast, you can get new content from a new founder every week by following us on all podcast apps. 